One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that takes advantage of the way songs become entwined with memories in order to bring out the storyteller and our guests. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Dick Spotswood. Dick's Wikipedia entry, which is robust to say the least, describes him as an American musicologist and author from Maryland who has cataloged and been responsible for the reissue of many thousands of recordings of vernacular music in the United States. He is all that and more. Check out that Wikipedia entry. I got to know Dick a bit during my years at the Alliance for the Arts because he's a board member of the Acoustic Music Society of Southwest Florida, which hosts bluegrass and acoustic music concerts every year in the Folds Theater there at the Alliance. He was recommended for this show by one of their other board members, Sharon Morrison, who sent me an email about how he'd recently been to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where he was honored for his life's work in preserving music. She described him as a quiet, simple man that most people don't even know is in Southwest Florida, but bluegrass musicians and fans certainly know who he is. Dick has hosted the Dick Spotswood Show on WAMU-FM in Washington, D.C. since 1967. He was a founder of Bluegrass Unlimited magazine the year before that. He has produced and annotated many recordings, including the 15-record set Folk Music in America, produced by the Library of Congress for the American Bicentennial, and he served as a consultant for Time Life Records' jazz series. We took the show on the road for his episode, driving down to Naples to the house his family has owned for decades. We sat down with him in his living room where he records his show for WAMU, and that's where we're going to begin. Uh, Dick Spotswood, thanks for doing this. Uh, welcome to Three Song Stories. Mike, it's a pleasure to see you and to uh, chat with you informally again. We've known each other for a long time outside of the radio station. It's good to be looking at you across from a microphone now, and I, I get to see a lot of what I get to hear. No, I, and I, uh, I totally appreciate that. I, I reciprocate that. I'm so glad to be in your house here uh, in Naples. And, you know, you were pointed out to us for this show by Sharon Morrison from uh, the Acoustic Music Society, and she described you as somebody who was very humble and that, that people would not know things about you that are part of your life, even though even if they're around you. And like you just alluded to, I, I, we've known each other for a long time, and there are lots. Of, you know, when I went to look into you for this podcast, there are lots of things about your life that I had no idea about. So I'm glad we're going to get to talk about some of them today. Well, you've got the menu. <laughs> okay, uh, for someone who is um, as immersed in music as you are, what was the musical background of your childhood when you were a kid? Uh, really, almost non-existent, Mike. I I, I grew up in a in a standard-issue suburban home just outside the, the district line in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And uh, my parents listened to—this is—I'm talking about the 1940s now. All we had was was AM radio, mm-hmm. and my parents had some uh, some records of Gilbert and Sullivan and Tchaikovsky and, uh, and music like that. The only uh, thing that was uh, aside from any anything uh, in that normal mold was a, a record of— uh, washboard Sam singing, come on in, ain't nobody owned but me. And naturally, that was the one I gravitated toward. Huh. So uh, <laughs> what, what, would, what kind of records would those have been at that time? Because like, you were explaining to me earlier that I didn't know what I was talking about when I called 78's vinyls. So what, was, what were the records of that day? Uh, that people were listening to, this was in the pre-rock era, and so the, uh, the people who ruled popular music in those days were Cole Porter and George Gershwin and the uh, the Tin Pan Alley songwriters uh, 
the the Brill Street thing didn't happen until the fifties. This is all uh, the earliest song I can remember um, is from nineteen forty one. Because I have, I'm not quite as old as that suggests, but I was born in '37, so I could have only been in uh, uh, four years old in 1941. But I remember hearing a pop crooner singing, "I don't want to set the world on fire." Is that the uh, the ink spots? <laughs> so, and I and I asked my mama, "Why is this guy singing about burning up the world?" <laughs> Because we, in fact, were on the eve of World right. War II. Yeah, yeah, And Roger so the that. song really had some resonance. Little kids take everything very, very literally. Sure. And I still remember you know, being scared to death by that, by that very genial-sounding song. <laughs> I thought the guy was looking forward to being swallowed in the flames. You know, you know, Dick. Um, I know this is probably outside of uh, your wheelhouse, but um, there are like current video games. That are yep. set that are set in a post-apocalyptic world, and that is actually that music is actually the backdrop to, to <laughs> it because because of that that juxtaposition that you just made, like it's 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 genial and it's soothing, yeah. and then you know and then they show like the wreckage, yeah. So it's it's funny the theme there that that you noticed as a kid. That's that's there is somebody's resonating it's or, there. or you know using that At scale. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fallout. Like it's a big. I, yeah. I didn't notice, Richard. I mean, to me, it was like there was no other possible interpretation. Right. You're singing about fire. You're singing about fire. What do I know about metaphors? You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's the first song you can remember hearing. Is, is can you think of an early time that music moved you somehow in a way that caught your attention? Absolutely, I was. Thanksgiving, 1948. I was 11 years old. My parents took me up to see some some relatives who had uh, bought a, a little farm growing out of some post-war prosperity at Atlantic Oil and everything out of uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They'd bought a little farm in Downingtown. And my, my father's first cousin, who was actually closer to my age, had just come home from, I believe she was at Bryn Mawr or something, and there was kind of a jazz revival going on at the time. I didn't really like the the popular or classical music that I heard. I was sort of, I I was attracted to them. The music was nice, but until I heard her playing records of Bix Beiderbecke with this, you know, this uh, rare and to go Chicago jazz crowd from the nineteen twenties, and in a in a record album that said jazz as it should be played, I thought, oh. 1920s, that must be the secret. <laughs> <laughs> so you and, have, go and, ahead. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I still don't think I was wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, it represents a time yeah, yeah. When, when the recorded sound was, was able to capture what was in place. You couldn't, you couldn't mediate it or change it or edit it or alter it or anything. You recorded what was there, yeah. and that's that's what survives. It was a record of and music being played. Records began to influence the music. Right. Uh, instead, it was in those early days the music was still influencing the records. You hmm. either recorded what was there, or you recorded something else. So there was a special magic to that pre pre depression time, or maybe pre World War II time, or something like that. That still sort of clings, and that's true across a broad area of popular and vernacular music for me um, through, you know, Southern banjo tunes, through depression era pop songs, which are sometimes surprisingly optimistic hmm. um, and, uh, and blues and all, all kinds of other minority music. 
Hmm. Um, do you remember you've you've bought a lot of music in your day? Do you remember the first music you owned? Um, I asked my parents to buy me that Bix Weiderbeck record oh, yeah. for Christmas. <laughs> Before that, neighbors had sort of given me who were you know giving up their old wind up Victrolas would give me the old records instead of throwing them out, and so I did get to hear an awful lot of uh, post World War One pop, which you know they had owned as as children or teenagers themselves, and so I got to do you know to know a lot of the. Uh, Jada Jada Jing 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 songs from 1919. So I was sort of conditioned to be, you know, living in the past to begin with. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Um, uh, did you ever it play- just put me on a weird trip that I never got off of. Did you ever play an instrument? Never wanted to. Never did. Never did. Couldn't keep time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what did you study in college? Was it something that was putting you on the trajectory that you're still on, or did you study something like business and then found music? I mean, you had already found music, but you know what I mean. Well, and I, I had discovered at that point that those the the value of those old records could could be some, you know, have some business too because they, uh, you know, they. You bought something cheap and it acquired value. Oh, I see. You were a record trader. Yeah, I was. Well, I was a record acquirer. I got what I could on the, you know, the means, the slender means that teenage kids had in those days. But I got what I could, and sometimes they were just worn copies of things. But I kept whatever I could find. Um, What was the rest of that question? Uh, What what did you study in college? Was it music related or not? That was the other. No, I I I got a bachelor's degree in philosophy. From University of Maryland in what nineteen fifty nine, I think. And then you got a then you got a master's too, right? And I got a master's when I came out of. Uh, um, in those in those days, you could fulfill military service by doing six months active duty training, with either the Army Reserves or the National Guard. And I got plunked into the Army Reserves and came out of that and went into library school at Catholic University and uh, and that that. That turned out very nice because I had a long career working in public libraries, right. which I was the best work I ever did. I had the most fun with it, and uh, and it taught me, you know, when I was doing subject cataloging and everything, it taught me how to use the computer because if I wanted to find out about something, I had to first figure out what to call it, uh-huh. and then I recalled all those days from making up entries for catalog cards. And that's still what you put on that line above the Google, yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah. find out what you want to know. First, you got to decide what it's called, <laughs> and so I'm pretty good at that. That is so funny. <laughs> that is a connection that I would not have thought of. Um, I didn't think of it either until, until the internet came along. Uh, yeah, until and it occurred to me, I'm better at this than other people. And I oh, I know why. Huh? That's great. because I'm barely computer literate. But uh, for for my needs, you know, I'm I'm just all over that place, and the computer really lets me write and construct little references and guides, and you know, access music that I wouldn't be able to find. Oh it. yeah, especially these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, describe what we're sitting in front of here. Paint a picture for the people who are at home. This is what, your, does this it, is, what does it look like to you? Well, it's an assortment <laughs> of computers and microphones and old school boards and whatever that thing is. <laughs> That's, a, oh, that's good. A radio professional comes in and can't tell what my equipment is. I am so flattered. <laughs> it, is, it is a 
It is a compact disc dual deck that... Uh, oh, it's got let, the slots there on the front. Yeah, it's got that. the slots. On that. Yeah, that's where I mean, you push a little button, it opens, and then you just put the mail in there. And so the, that's your double CD deck. So that's the double CD deck. And then and you've the, got a record player, in fr- a turntable in front of it. That's the turntable that will play uh, everything, uh, well, really everything except 16 and two-thirds RPM, and there were some records made at that, but... But it'll play 78 RPM and 45 and 33. And uh, the only thing I can't reproduce from from retro sources are cylinders. And I could do that too if I wanted to spend uh, 20-some thousand dollars on these little units that... Do you know what a cylinder is? I a do. Recorded I cylinder? do. I have been through the Edison Ford Estates. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Us Floridians should know that if we did yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. see Edison right. Um and it turns out that those, those records were really a superior way of capturing sound. Really? Cylinders beginning. were? Yeah. yeah. But they were like incredibly fragile. Um, squeezed them too hard. They were for a sure. while until uh, Edison got into a patent dispute with, um, uh, oh, I forget who it was, but there were some companies that were making uh, plastic cylinders out of a plasticide material you know, as, as early as 1900, 1901. But they were in violation of some Edison patents, and Edison got them put out of business. And so the fragile cylinders continued until Edison began making uh, non-destructible cylinders of his own. We'll have to ask Mike Cosden about that. Yeah, we know a guy. <laughs> we know a guy. He's, he's like in charge of the Edison Ford Winter Estates. Yeah, at, we just recorded an episode oh, of this well, podcast he, with him last week. Oh, okay. He would he would know he would know all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, um, you know what it is, Dick? It's time for your first song. What is it? And what is the it was, story? I want to put. The, I don't want to put it. the world on fire. That's what. No, your first song that we're going to listen to today. It's time for your first song story. All right. Well, this is a. Record, very much like I described Bix Beiderbeck a while ago, I heard the record 50-some years ago, and I just thought it was an exquisite performance, a great voice, a great guitar. The guy knew exactly what to, how to get that Mississippi blues harmony sound out of an instrument. He worked on his own cheap guitar and, and put nails and screws and things into it so that he was able to add three extra strings so he's played, the upper strings are in two courses each. Okay. So, so he's it's... playing a nine-string guitar. Holy cow, okay. And he took a song that had appeared in the early 1920s and that's just bounced around. You can hear R&B versions of the song from the 50s and 60s, but his version from 1941 is just called Meet Me Around the Corner, um, which is not the original title, but then he's singing the original song. And it's just a voice and guitar and if somebody is playing a string bass or something in the background, it is very quiet. It may be the, the, the bass strings on the guitar. I don't know. But it's essentially just voice and guitar. And he's singing about um, the oncoming. This is from 1941. He's singing about the oncoming of World War II because there are two very telling verses. One is the woman I love sleeping in her grave and the woman I hate, I see her every day. That's... Mm. <laughs> That's a good metaphor for the blues. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other one is where he sings, what you going to do when your man goes to the war? And then he forgets the second line of the song, and you'll hear what he what he does with it. Just voice and guitar. This guy is from Crawford, Mississippi, on the eastern side of the state, and his name was, uh, was Big Joe Williams, and uh, he was in and out of the music scene probably for five or six uh, decades there, 
records of him all the way up to the stereo era and all the way back to the 1920s. This one is from 1941. Hmm. Why did you pick it as one of your three from all the hundreds you could have picked? Because I couldn't pick four. I had to only pick three, and so... That's a great answer. I, I, I responded <laughs> to you. Ask a simple question. <laughs> I responded to your, your, and you said, just pick three. And I said, well, there's no way I can pick my three favorites because I probably have 300 or 3,000 favorites. Mm. So I just sat and thought, well, what am I thinking about at the moment? This is when you and I first corresponded. I said, oh, well, I haven't had this record for very long. In fact, that was part of the story, I should have said. I, I visited a, a northern record collector last winter, and and I he showed me a list of records he had, and I saw that. I said, I have been looking for that record ever since I was a kid. And, you know, just to, to flatter him and make it. Instead, his reaction was, here, give me a dollar. And I, I wanted to write him a check for $300. Well, I did. He tore up the check. Oh, yeah. And But he did make me give him the dollar. And, <laughs> and, and this, is, this is what I got. All right, let's listen to it. This is uh, Meet Me Around the Corner by Big Joe Williams. So you found that record. You brought it home. What was it like when you listened to it for the first time? Well, when I listened to it for the first time, it was probably about 1959 or oh, so. Oh, I meant when you found the record. When I, when I found the record. <laughs> was I it mean, like time travel? I, I, you know, when I looked at it, I could hear it. <laughs> oh, I'd never great. seen it before in my life. But I was thinking... Oh, this is so precious! Yeah, I um, it was just a, a musical performance that I uh, that I treasured and could relate it to, and I never never really expected to own it. It's not a record that should be all that scarce, but uh, um, sometimes the best way to not find something is to want it a whole lot, hmm. and that was the case with me in that record <laughs> until finally. Uh, Richard Nevins just decided he would be generous. <laughs> How many records did you have at the peak of your collection? I had a lot more when I uh, lived in uh, suburban Maryland, just outside of D.C., than I did when I came down here. I had a lot of vinyl, and I, I left all of that to the Library of Congress. Um, I had a large collection of foreign language stuff on 78, basically from... 1900 to 1945 or 1950, but 78 years. But there was Greek, Irish, West Indian, and so on. The only ones I kept were the West Indian records. Those are on the shelf over here. There's a lot of them, and there's more in the closet that I didn't have room for. But I, I, I came from a, a large house, uh, and when I came down here, the, this house is about probably a third as, as oh, large. Wow. And so I, you know, I really had to do, do a Nazi thing on my records. You know, <laughs> this one goes, this one goes, this. One. <laughs> I had to handle everything I owned and said, "Are you keeping this or not?" And so I wound up with a just a fragmentary record collection and depended more on the compact disc to do my broadcasts with. Hmm. Your fragmentary record collection is bigger than most people's record collections, so it's still not small. Um, uh, for those just listening who haven't been to the website, we'll have some pictures, but it's, it's two, three, it was a three-by-three three bookshelf, like three-box-by-three-box, three and then another one stacked on top of that, and then another four-shelf with the record player and everything on top of that. How many, how many would you say... I'm I'm going to guess between fourteen and fifteen hundred records. It's a lot. But of I probably had closer to uh, five or six thousand before I before wow. I moved. So how does a 
guy studying philosophy in 1959 wind up hosting a bluegrass show on WAMU eight years later, if I'm doing the math right? There's not a direct line. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, take us on the meandering course then. (laughs) No, I just, I bounced out of things. And this, this was the sixties and I was, you know, I was into, so I I wasn't really a, a, a probably more of a hippie now than I was then. But um, it was, but the sixties were also the time of the folk revival. And uh, I, I never lost my love for the music, and all of a sudden, some opportunities uh, showed up to to get at and to to re-record some other people from this era, from the Big Joe Williams era, who were very important in music as far back as the 1920s, and who were still young enough to have their musical chops with them. Mm-hmm. And um, to my everlasting good fortune, my uh, the people I got to record were included Mississippi John Hurt, first and foremost, because that's the guy everybody's heard sure, of. Sure, yeah, yeah. But uh, Skip James, who was less well-known, but uh, I think an even more certifiable genius, um, a mad genius, but a genius, uh, was was the second one. And the third one was a pastor who had recorded some really passionate and, and very startling blues in the 20s, but who had... Um, sworn uh, uh, eternal allegiance to God when his wife survived what was supposed to be a terminal illness. And he would play blues figures on his guitar, but he would not sing that music anymore. Hmm. But he let me record gospel music, the music he sang in church, in the Church of God of Christ in Memphis. His name was Robert Wilkins. And um, so the the three of those people, plus the, uh, the, the bluegrass and the country music people that I was involved with that uh, and, and other stretches uh, too were, you know, were it was just a lot of that music to be heard in the 60s the other complicating factor in my life was was getting Crohn's disease huh. I was on the uh, on the big march the civil rights march the, the day that Martin Luther King gave the I have a dream speech I was there for that except that I didn't last long enough to hear it I got abdominal pains and I had to go home and when I before I was finished, all of that uh, five years later, I had my entire you know intestinal tract removed. And, oh wow! And uh, I almost didn't make it a few times, so that influenced the direction of my life too. When you were redoing- a marriage broke up, and uh, I had to dissolve a little record company that I had created to to handle some of this music. It was like that that Dickens thing. It was the best of times and yeah. the worst of times for me. When you were doing the recordings, did you have a studio that you were working out of? Were you doing like a field recording thing where you'd go to them? Like, how did that all work and how did it come Interesting about? Interesting you should ask. Uh, that worked in a very neat kind of reciprocal way. I had a childhood friend named Pete Kuykendall. His name I suspect you've heard. He was the uh, the, the, the the biggest bluegrass authority, capital A, probably in, in the country. He was another childhood friend uh, I went to school in Bethesda, Maryland. He went to high school at Arlington High School in Virginia um, and was a classmate of Warren Beatty. Okay. Pete was a banjo player and very much of a record collector and authority. He was finding out things about bluegrass at the time that are commonplace knowledge today. Pete was finding out a lot of that stuff for the for the first time. And um, so as he began to record 
some local and then not some not so local bluegrass. He created a little a little studio because he was technologically very sophisticated. More you know, he was more like you than me. <laughs> I, I haven't really learned the basics yet. And uh, so you Pete do make built, a radio show. <laughs> well, I, that much I can do, um, and I have actually done some you know some recordings of music on portable recorders and everything, but. Pete had a real studio and really got was able to make quality recordings because he was, uh, I mean, the original records by the seldom seen and country gentlemen, those all-star Washington bluegrass bands at the time uh, worked in his studio. I was able to take those blues players to his studio and we, we made the deal because we were friends. I said, you record the music and make it ready for mastering and for, you know, for publication and everything. And, uh, the little music corporation that he'd built to protect the songs that he had from, from the gentlemen and from and, and from those other people. Sure, we can just we go ahead and sign contracts with Hurt and James and Wilkins and and uh, and a few other people, and uh, you can publish. Winwood can publish the songs. I got minority stock, which I still have in in the publishing company, and that paid off uh, when. Uh, when Eric Clapton and Cream recorded I'm So Glad twice in 1969, the year Skip James died of terminal terminal cancer, urinary cancer, uh, and uh, the uh, the proceeds from the royalties through Winwood of that song because uh, Cream re-recorded on a live show and the damn thing sold all over again. I mean, the royalties were six figures. Oh, really? It, it wow. paid his medical bills for the last, because he had no insurance, sure. for the last year of his life and made his passing a whole lot easier. He, We also cashed in again on... Skip James was the least popular of these entertainers, but he had, uh, he had the I'm So Glad song, and he also had the song called The Hard Time Killing Floor Blues, which you may recall... That guy singing in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay, I think okay. I do. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that movie a number yeah. of times, so it's in there somewhere. And that guy, I forget his name, the guy that played uh, played the blues singer named that they named Tommy Johnson. He uh, he he performed that uh, that that song, and uh, that that earned another six figures. There was a lot of money that came through that song, money that didn't go to Skip and to oh and to uh, Wilkins because Wilkins had. Uh, a song called "The Prodigal Son" that wound up being used, uh, uh, being re-recorded by Keith, uh, what's his name, and Mick, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Keith, what's his name? Well, <laughs> it's a funny. I don't know why I can't remember Keith. names like Richard. You know? Mm. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. Oh man. You know, maybe it's because it doesn't belong as a last name. Yeah, that's, that doesn't sound. Is that right. what it is? Yeah, it must be those those Rolling Stone guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but the the I radio... mean, my 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 name is Richard Keith Spotswood, so I was like, oh, that's funny. That You're yeah, 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 that's crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, but how did the radio show come about then? I mean, the you, radio you show came up... about when in uh, in '67 when I was still recovering from my next to last bout of of, of uh, uh, intestinal surgery with a, a guy that had a jazz program of no particular merit on WAMU at the time that um, um, 
national public. It was still called National Educational Radio. Right, right. NPR was just, uh, you know, in, in the formation stages. Sure. And, in fact, some of the WAMU people were in including Susan Stamberg and uh-huh. George Giese at all, uh-huh. that some of the WAME people had a lot to do Were those do with your that. people? I mean, did you know those people? Like, were you, like, in the building with them at the time? No, or were because they I, uh, I, I said, I'll, I'll do a bluegrass show if you want. And they were sort of hard up for programming at the time. And they said, okay. So uh, I, uh, I would come in and record, like, four shows in one seating, little half-hour shows. They were, like, little... The classroom lectures, you know, was because it, it was supposed to be kind of coat and tie undergrad. Sure. It was like, you know, academic music yeah, or yeah, yeah, vernacular yeah, yeah. music made to sound academic, something along those lines. Understood. So, so the program caught on. And then when I quit, uh, Gary Henderson, who was working with me on the show, he took the show older and he started doing the programs live and more often. And so they had a lot of bluegrass on that station. And until, uh, Especially in the days before um, uh, the morning edition was uh, Bob Edwards and uh, he and Susan were the first two hosts on uh, All Things Considered. And then Bob veered off from that and and did the the morning Uh one all by himself. And um, um, so that's, that's when NPR really began to take off. More because of the morning show, I think, than because of the evening one, because I guess if the drive time programming had a lot more of a, of a captive audience. You would know more about that than I would. He would know more about that than I would. <laughs> <Is> there- <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, part- you ain't that old. No, but no, but that's my part of my job right now. Um, <laughs> it's it's mostly down to just you. Everyone everyone's got to go to work at some point, and at the end of the day, people don't always want to hear the news, but in the morning, you want to know what happened. So on the front end, like oh. all those morning edition, that morning edition programming was like your first step into the day. And so people didn't want to miss that on their way to the water cooler. But then on the way home, you got, you know, you're picking up kids, you're picking up groceries, you just don't world weary. <laughs> you, yeah. Yeah. So. Unless you're in a place where you can listen in, in a, in a sort of uninter- uninterrupted way. Yeah. Because the problem well the the strength and the problem with morning edition is the frequent interruptions and all the hosts that have to cut people off in the middle of sentences because they always got their yeah. eye on their on the watch and <laughs> the clock and doesn't so, stop <laughs> yeah you you can't you can, and and there, there's apparently no no good way well you would know better than i would to sort of let people know and to guide them into a a clay, you know, a, a safe, uh, smooth finish. Well, and sometimes know, it works better than yeah. others. Well, yeah. you know, do you know what's happened is also um, as technology's improved, over the line interviews have improved. Yeah. So, Morning Edition right now, right? They do it out of Washington and out of uh, Culver, California, Culver City, right? And so they're they're not in the same room, but those hosts they sound amazing because they're on like a high bandwidth audio line. So it's the same. Well, I figure they must have an on-screen connection or oh, something. Oh, oh they surely they're, they're they're as precise as ballet dancers. Oh, they surely do. But um, <laughs> but with guests, right? It's yeah. often it's often you just set up a nice line in a studio somewhere. Yeah. And so when you when you're just sitting in a dark room and you're listening, you're talking to a host who's hundred miles away, right? And they ask you a question. You're just no body keep, language. Yeah, you're just going to keep talking. You don't know body. how yeah. long yeah. to yeah. go yeah. on. And, yeah. And so then they say, "Hey, uh, thirty seconds, please. Yeah. We got to." Yeah. So how similar is your radio show that you're producing from this table today to what you were doing back then? I wouldn't say similar so much as identical. 
<laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, well, no, I mean, it's a, I have a very limited skill set, so it's just me, me and a bunch of old records, you know. Oh, uh, <laughs> if the uh, music was good, I couldn't stand there and get away with anything by myself. Uh-huh. People listened to; they put up with me in order to get to the music. Uh, and these days, so you're recording it here, you're putting it on CDs, and you're mailing it to WAMU, and then mm. they're playing it up there. Uh, when how- I did live radio, I would do you know dated stuff for holidays and other yeah, things, yeah, yeah. or response to. Uh, I got into an awful lot of trouble once for playing a a song. This is back in 1991 when you know we were gearing up for war again, and I played a song called. Bomb, 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 Iran. <laughs> <laughs> and they like to fire me for doing that. <laughs> and the guy said, I don't want to hear any about the First Amendment either. <laughs> oh, man. Um, uh, you've also written books, right? Yeah, I am literate. How yep. many books have you written? Um, Approximately. <laughs> well, it depends on what you want to call a book. Well, there's yeah, I mean, like anthologies. I did. And I've done two sort of biographical studies of, of um, Blue Sky Boys and Wade Maynard, who were North Carolina country music person with a, a really deep roots in, in traditional music that perpetuated a lot of that transition. It, a lot of that music they did transitioned into bluegrass in the 1940s, and, a, and they were sort of connecting tissue between the early times and what we think of as relatively modern stuff. Sorry about that. Oh, uh, and um, they... Uh, uh, so I, I got to do a book on on each of them, mostly because the opportunity just presented itself to me, and I kind of knew that you know if I didn't, nobody else was going to either. And so both times I was able to persuade University of Mississippi to give me a book contract. And, and well, that's good. Nice to have my name on something. And, but I've also done a couple of reference things that are just purely discography, mm-hmm. which is the systematic study and documentation of recorded sound. And one of them deals with uh, what I call country music, country music sources is the title of the thing. And it's a discography by songs rather than performers. Huh. So if you want to look up John Henry, you go to that entry in the book. Regardless of what title a particular recording used for John Henry, because it appears under a dozen different titles, the songs are all grouped together chronologically and they huh. give you the recording date and place and the matrix number and and all of that too. I mean, there's nothing particularly creative there, but it uh, it does. It's it's a testimony to my patience. <laughs> it got published in a book, and I'm just. I mean, it's it's something that anybody who wants to can see because it's now just a computer file. But I'm you know I'm maintaining it and keeping it up to date and adding some things. And it's it's, it's what what I do when I it's like like knitting. You know, you yeah. you're never quite through with it, and you could always sort of pick it up and lay it down. So I'm I'm doing a book on that, and and then I had another seven volume thing that was just foreign language records made in the U.S. Uh, from 1893 from the Chicago World's Fair. That's where they first made surviving recordings. I mean, they're they're still out there today, of Little Egypt and the you know the dancers and the music to um to again up to to World War II, but it was all the Everything that was recorded in in uh, Albanian, Greek, Turkish, uh, Slovak, Slovene, and so on, even the Irish and West Indian music, 
which is in English, but it was still treated like foreign language stuff. So you've you've lived a pretty non-traditional life, I think it'd be fair to say, in terms of your interests. Have your friends always been like, yeah, go, Dick, or they're like, you're crazy? <laughs> well, you, you tend to, it's like, uh, I'm sure you've experienced this in your, your own circle of acquaintances. You tend to pick up, a, make a lot of friends because they're people that sure, you've met because yeah. of common interests in the first place. So it's kind of self-fulfilling or self-defeating, sure, whichever yeah. way you want to look at it. And, and uh, so it becomes of that. But then, you know, I make, I make uh, personal acquaintances. One of the things I do in, in insulated places like, uh, like uh, Naples, where everybody has an electric garage door and they get it, you know, they go through their house, get into their, gar- their car in the garage, the door opens, the car drives out. These are people that are able to live in Naples and never go outside. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know any of them because <laughs> <laughs> the ones that don't do that are the people that, that have these, uh, you know, million, $3 million cottages that they visit once or twice a year. But because I go out, you know, walking just to, you know, to keep upright uh, twice a day, I meet a lot of people on the street and I make friends that way. Most of them have no idea what kind of, why would I tell them? Why yeah, would they want to know? Yeah, that's a good uh, point. So uh, there's there's professional and personal stuff and when the two overlap, that's that's even nicer, but uh, you can't count on that, you know? Do you listen to music or anything like that, other shows when you go walking or is it just you and nature? Or traffic? No, or I just, traffic. no, I just... I either listen to the to the news or I just use mm. the time to walk and think and uh, um, so I have it on because I walk in the mornings and the evenings so I yep. you know I, I do get to hear um, uh, you know morning edition for about ninety minutes or so and then uh, in the evening uh, uh, all things considered and then if I hear if they're doing a promo for something interesting that's come, like like <laughs> I meant to ask you what's happened to. What happened to the, the, the New York Times thing, the dailies the or daily. something? Oh, that seems to be bouncing around the clock, and then it ain't there at all. Well, no, it's at 9.30 now it's instead nine, of 10. So Monday to Thursday at 9.30. This the is, little show that wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for those of you uh, who are listening, uh, there is a podcast by the New York Times called The Daily, uh, and we air it, if you're in Southwest Florida, we air it on the air, 9.30, Monday to Thursday, and 10 p.m., on Fridays, and it is a great show. It's a radio version of the podcast, which is a great podcast. They they cover like one story for twenty five minutes, thirty minutes. It's it's a really good show. It's still there. It's, it's still just there. moved up a half hour. Well, then, what are you doing with um, with the Gulf Coast Live? Gulf Coast Live has temporarily been downsized to thirty minutes, which is why oh, we because had to move of Julie. Day. Oh, okay, exactly. Oh, we so are, that's we okay. are running on fumes. So now we're a half hour show instead of an hour, and the daily fills up the other half of that hour now for we us. We used to call that musical chairs. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It feels like musical chairs. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay, it is my time. My sympathies. It is time to move on to your second song. Uh, I would you like to, never asked. Would you like to tell the story? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. Uh, well, I asked now, so now <laughs> it's time. Uh, pronounce it for us. All right. It's called Secretos Pasionales. And this is... Cuban Cuban music I discovered not until the seventies or so I guess because I had thought of Cuban music as that kind of hot hot salsa that yeah. comes out of of Manhattan and, and Harlem and places that with large blaring bands with great brass sections and all I didn't know about the uh, the the folkier aspect of that music that, that in many cases reaches back to very almost uh, um, 
African roots you could almost almost touch, and and learning about the uh, ensembles in Cuban, they were always very comfortably racially mixed, and uh, and the music was was part Spanish, and it would be part uh, African. There would be sextetos that that would only have one or two melody instruments, but the rest of it would be like four people playing uh, playing the uh, um, playing rhythm. Why can't I think of that word? Not like percussion. The, like percussion. This particular record by Quarteto uh, Machin, M-A-C-H-I-N, with a little accent over the I, is something I, I I just I heard once and and I I just I couldn't forget it. The song was so beautiful. It's called Secretos Pasionales, and it's about it's literally about a seduction scene, but it's it's very steamy and it's and it, it's not you know the man seducing the woman or vice versa. It's by two very willing partners, and they're they're about to just go off in the woods. But it's it ain't cute. It ain't funny. It is you know it is. I really really feel for you, and I want you in my life. Um, if you want, since you're sitting in front of the screen, you could if we can maybe just kill this for a moment. We could find the uh, the text on there, and you could you could read it. I wasn't planning on sitting over here, so go to. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Go. Oh, this is great. Oh wait, where are we going? No, you go to uh, oh, upper left corner. Go to go to Gmail. I'm, no. I'm in the I'm in the gray this zone Mike, between Mike's my doing, reading glasses. And <laughs> Mike's doing my job. Um, I love it. You're a professional announcer. You can make this very convincing. Go for it. Warm weather, gray sky, moon, night of commotions and party. Two lovers invited by the moon have gone to walk deep into the forest. Warm weather, gray sky, moon, night of commotions and party. Two lovers invited by the moon have gone to walk deep into the forest. There is a dazzle of poppies in the shadowed forests. The lovers finding themselves alone tell each other their secret passions. There is a dazzle of poppies in the shadowed forest. The lovers finding themselves alone tell each other their secret passions. I think that's the end. Yeah, it's not, not a very long song. No, well, because then it says attachments area, but I'm pretty sure that's Google. <laughs> <laughs> but even in translation, that's that's a yeah. beautiful poem, and you know, for me, it just stirs so many. Do you remember when you so heard many, it first? You said you like it struck you. Do you remember where you were in the world? Well, I probably heard it first a thousand years before I actually heard it. I mean, it was just just a song that that I knew I wanted to. I if I would kill to get a copy of the original '78, but we we've got the MP3 here because it's all there is, and that comes from uh, somebody in uh, in Colombia. I forget. It's 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 been handed to, around to several people before it came to me. Quarteto Machin, which is uh, two guitars and uh, claves and uh, and uh, and the singer. I think yeah, the singer maybe is playing a rhythm instrument too. That's Antonio Machin. He has. Um, I'll make this short. Uh, he is uh, he is best known because he is the guy who first sang the Peanut Vendor in 1930, which is the song that brought Cuban music to the United States. It's the uh, it's uh, I mean the the first cover of the song was by Louis Armstrong, which tells you how hot the song was. But Machine, uh, I have that record on the shelf too, was uh, was the guy who inter- played it with a he sang it in front of a dance orchestra. And then uh, RCA began making records by his own quartetto. Secretos Pasionales was uh, was one of them. Yayito Maldonado is the lead guitarist. And if you like 
music that modulates out of one key to another for to play something comfortably, but to also heighten the drama. It goes in and out of one key and another from the music to the guitar portions. And uh, this just music that makes me weak. What can I say? <laughs> So, uh, so Dick, you know, even even if you had zero translation in front of you, you can tell that it's a romantic song. Like the composition of it and the tenor of the singers, like the harmony that they that they use, sounds like a romantic song. Yeah, it's got a longing to it. Yeah, I I, I don't know what that is. I'm just. It, and if you don't know Spanish, the title still gives it away. Yeah, it? that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's not particularly. Uh, complicated, yeah. Secretos passionales. <laughs> you had to, yeah. you had to have some. Somebody... Have you ever been that crazy in love? You know, that's 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 the soundtrack for when you're about ready to make a huge fool of yourself. <laughs> yeah. I think it's good. Yeah. Oh, so you had to have somebody send you a recording of that. So, how, when was the last time you had heard it prior to them sending you this recording? Never, never heard it. Uh, Jaime Jaramillo up there in New Jersey was my my Cuban music go to guy for. Uh, uh, for one thing and another, uh, discographies, artist biographies, and whatnot, he uh, w- what I know about the music is largely due to him. And he's Puerto Rican, but uh, he's a very much a student of, of the genre. And a lot of that music leaked over into Puerto Rico and then leaked up into uh, into uh, to New York too. That Caribbean Spanish language music it's as good as anything that ever came out in North America. As you can tell. Yeah. I mean that's it doesn't get much better than that, but there's an awful lot of other stuff that's as good as that. Right, right. Yeah. Uh what, what was it like for you to hear it after, you know, like like it's like time travel, right? Hearing it after all these years? I invoked the name of the blessed savior. Huh. I went, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and I played it again and again and again. <laughs> hmm. I after I heard it about twenty times, I think I'd finally heard enough, but uh I would have, um, I would have given anything to just to be there and you know experience hearing that uh, you know live and, uh, uh, but the, the the phonograph record was was the second best. It was pretty good second best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You looked like you were going to say something. No, I Richard. just agree wholeheartedly. Um, so you so you mentioned that you donated a bunch of your records to the Library of Congress. You were recently in D.C. for an event at the Library of Congress where you were honored. Or maybe roasted. I thought it was going to be a, a, a roast. I wasn't sure. I thought it was going to be just a, you know, like a, a, a peer level discussion, you know, with a lot of people talking about because they they had they had listed me as a as a discographer, and I thought, well, this is some people were going to talk about documenting recorded sound, which people do talk about a lot because a lot of you know, ways and various means of doing things that are um, not not especially interesting here. But uh, instead, it was you know a whole bunch of people that just had very nice things to say about me. And and I listen. I say, well, yeah, I did all that stuff, but it it sounds much better coming from you. And so <laughs> I I guess uh, I, I guess I'm old enough to where I have this coming. Uh, mm. But uh, it really. It's it's funny when when I mean if people heap a lot of abuse on you at one time, it kind of throws you off balance. But to, you know to get so much praise does the same damn thing, especially if you start believing it. You know, 
So you look like you keep it on the even keel, though. <laughs> I hope so. Maybe this is just one of my better days. <laughs> oh, um, uh, how when I look good on radio. You look good on radio. I say that all the time. I, I look. I look great. Oh, on I radio. thought I made that up. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, when was the last time you acquired new music? Are you still on the hunt? I mean, it seems like you're trying to downsize, but... Well, I usually say stop me before I collect again, but uh, I just, the other day, uh, someone who knew that I was very fond of Mildred Bailey's recording of a little nursery rhyme. Do you know the little nursery rhyme? goes, the other day upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't, wasn't there. there. He wasn't there, there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go, go away. away. Go yeah. away. Go away. Oh, how I wish. <laughs> we can listen to that one, too, if you, but that'll have to be your fourth selection. But the guy sent me a glistening copy of it, and it sounds great, as does Mildred Bailey, who was... Uh, wasn't Bing Crosby's sister in life. Oh, there was a more complicated, but she she had something to do with getting Bing Crosby to Hollywood. Hmm. Uh, are you using the internet to find music, or are you still just required? I use the internet for anything that I can. But you're like ordering. Movie. You find you know go find a record that you uh, want. No, um, occasionally that has happened, but uh, uh, I mean the, the serious answer to your question is that when I moved down here, I, I knew that living in smaller quarters would mean that I was really going to have to put a lid on, on the collecting. And so I'll acquire uh, things casually as opportunity presents, but I'm really trying to keep the accumulation down because those, those shelves are largely full. Mm-hmm. And uh, as it is, I've had to, as things have accumulated, I've had to take a lot of the West Indian records out and put them in boxes in the closet because I've done big collections, reissue collections, published collections of West Indian music right. from those copies. So now that I have the CDs, I don't have to listen to the 78 discs, and they can go in the closet. Hmm. Uh, so I'm artificially creating creating room like that. But I probably have another 100 or so 78s of strictly Calypso music from the 1930s in the closet. You uh, you have a musical taste that looks backwards. Have you seen much live music over the years, is that something that's? Something... Oh, I love I love live music. Okay, do you have any peak live be... music uh, experiences that you remember? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where to begin? Like uh, what? Give us some well, for instances. Uh, just well, uh, this isn't a for instance, but I I I'm just offering the the live music as a way to to grasp music. I'll tell you a good example because it happened right here. I uh, I never thought that I liked Southern gospel very much the the the, the sort of slick coat and tie music and uh, and presentation of of groups like the the the, the Blackwood Brothers and uh, and the Jordanaires there's people that that, uh, that that veered away from those those shape note harmonies that characterize the you know, the gospel singing from North Carolina and Alabama you know that that ancient sound and um, and someone called me one night and said the Blackwood Brothers are performing at a little church that's down. Um, you're not a Neapolitan here, so you'd oh, have to I'm take not. my word. This on is my eleventh time. <laughs> that's <all> right. <laughs> so who's counting? I'm joking, but yeah, about that. <laughs> uh, but it was a. There's a whole slew of doctors' offices in in high-rise buildings that are 
scattered in this little medical park that's down off of uh, of uh, Goodlett Road here, and um, and there was a church in, in amongst all of that, and uh, they hosted the Blackwood Brothers once. And I said, well, I I should go and see because these guys have been around for a thousand years, and I I really should. Uh, give this music a chance and see what it sounded well. When when I got out of there, I was convinced. I said, "Yeah, this is like doo-wop combined with, uh, uh, you know, the Four Freshmen or something." And it had had a real pop edge to it, but it was still southern, and it and it it had you know it had some uh, it had more going for it than than I realized. And I would have never listened to it uh, had I not had the experience to hear it live and had I sort of flagellated myself into <laughs> making myself go listen. And I've gone to hear some more Southern gospel since, and it's been nothing was quite that good because those guys were amazing pros. But uh, I've, I've enjoyed something more now that I didn't used to. Live performances, I mean, I've, I've seen classical music concerts. We used to go, we used to be able, This yeah, this is a good live performance thing. I, when I was still in high school, didn't have uh, the only money I had was what I got from being a newspaper boy, you know, uh, rolling newspapers up and throwing them on people's porches in the afternoon. And in those days, if you had 25 cents, you could go down to the Library of Congress on Friday nights and listen to the, originally it was the Budapest String Quartet, later on it was the Juilliard Quartet, take the Stradivarius instruments out of those glass cases and play them because you were supposed to play those damned instruments. Yeah. The musicians would much have preferred to play their own instruments, right. but they were there was a special fund there that allowed those people to come and, and keep those strads wow. in, in, in working condition. And the repertory, everything like that was, was up to them. And so I could hear all of this. And I've still, I in classical music, I still have a, strong preference for for you know chamber music small yeah. ensembles i really really like that music i'm not active with it in any way but uh, if it's if somebody's playing it i'll listen what about that rock and roll stuff don't don't like that <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah you've just never gone there no i well i i went there and, and i stopped because when i was a little kid i i also discovered that there were certain stations uh this is after world war ii that catered to minority audiences. There were country music stations, but there were black stations that featured mixtures of rhythm and blues and gospel, and I liked all of that. But when the rock and roll phenomenon hit, and that music crossed out of the you know the urban communities into the uh, white suburbs, the music all of a sudden got really cleaned up. Not just the sex, but the alcohol and the you know the driving. All everything about being bad was just lifted out of that music overnight, and and it was made, it was it was just bodlerized. It was sanitized. It was made, uh, uh, you know, for for larger uh, um, like mass appeal. I, yeah, mass mass appeal. I, I was looking for some adjective, I couldn't find it, and I never liked that aspect of it. But mm. uh, you know the the rhythm and blues from that year. And I got to see a little bit of that, too. I did get to see Bo Diddley and the Clovers. Mm. Clovers are from Washington. Wow. So I even made friends with one of them later on. Um, but not to... Elvis Presley's very first records that had that, that southern blues sonority mm -hmm. I thought were marvelous. After that, they took exactly what was appealing about him and extracted it from his music. 
<laughs> Those are the records everybody else likes. <laughs> um, have you ever been starstruck? In all Do you the know the ones I'm met? talking about? Baby, let's play house. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, that's I mean, that, that's that's that's. I mean, that was one white kid who really got it. You know. Yeah. But they didn't let him keep it. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a there's a sit like a more sinister tone in a good in the best way possible yeah. about like old jazz and blue old yeah. blues has. So much there. A little bit of a threat. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they had to take all the sharp edges off to yeah. sell it. And I mean, instead you of. You dance to it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, well, yeah. it's made a few bucks. Yeah, and they made a lot of money on it. But, man. Well, little Richard, supposedly, when he, you know, his tutti frutti. Yeah. Did, when there, and apparently, this. You know this story? Oh, I know. I love that song. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> apparently. When he when he auditioned the song and did a, a, a preparatory, and I, I gather this is out there someplace, he sang the song "Tutti Fruity, Good Booty." Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and they made him change the lyric. I think I like that. Sounds, I mean, that I think I like right. that. <laughs> but in but it, you know but it, but encapsulated that's the story yeah. of, of rock the and roll. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. They're like have you ever been starstruck by somebody who you met or got to talk to because of your life in music? Is there anybody who's, you know, that you're like, whoa, that's them? Uh, probably thousands of people. I'm very starstruck. <laughs> well, you seem like you're very comfortable around people, and you've probably met so many of them that thought maybe it had kind of numbed you after a while. Well, I'll brag just a little here. I've done enough, and my name is out there enough, so that those people come to me. Uh, when they do, or if they do, you know, we're, when we're together, they know who I am too, and that that makes it easier. I don't yeah, have yeah. to, I don't have to prove to myself that I'm not just, you know, some uninformed fan who wants an autograph and right. you know, on a date with their wife or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note, we are I, moving on to your third song. Oh, okay. Would you like to tell the story? Would you like to uh, listen to it? This is um, well. We we will listen to it. Do you, do you want to hear it first? Uh, it's your, up. You that's your pick. call. Yeah, we can. So yeah, we, let's let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and hear it first cool. because, and then you can edit it to wherever you want it to be in the. Anyway, I assume are we? Are, is this going out live unedited and everything too? Or? Oh no, there's yeah. some editing. Yeah, that I, I would have oh, thought yeah. no, it because gets... I'm being fairly free with things I'm saying to you that I hope aren't going out. On the... Oh yeah, oh, well, well, a lot no. of the dialogue <laughs> is going to stay unedited. Or, or if, it, if it does go out, good luck to you. Oh, oh no, I do. Oh no, Sorry. yeah. Wait till you hear the finished product. You're going to be surprised at how smooth this all sounds. For my home in heaven, I'm So what's that called? That's a song that, well, as you can tell, comes from the, the 1930s. It's called uh, There's No Depression in Heaven. James D. Vaughn, who is to the gospel songwriting fraternity, as it was pretty exclusively fraternity back in those days, uh, wrote that in 1932, and uh, it's been recorded a number of times. The bluegrass people tend to speed it up and mm-hmm. play it as, a, as, as more of a charge or a route or something um shay smith who was the lead the low lead voice on on that recording decided to to slow it down into much as we heard with secretos pasionales they were playing with the modulation and and stacking the voices in different ways and uh, really doing as much as possible with with four people at that time and and really putting the uh you know the uh everything in it that, that that the song that the song had and applied and uh, 
I uh, I forget what our what our exchange was, but she just uh, she she just offered to send that to me and said this is going to be on our next record. It's not not been released yet. I'm just having that because she sent me that computer file and it sounded just remarkably good. So when was that recorded? So it was uh, recorded within you know the last few weeks. Uh, oh wow! A couple, couple of months or so something. That's a contemporary that is very much contemporary. recording. Yeah, I mean you were asking about live music. Well, that they were alive when they were seeing it, and that's all very recent. So they've been around since the '30s. And they're releasing music. The Chuck Wagon Gang has been <laughs> around since the 30s, sort of like the Rolling Stones have been around since the 50s yeah. or 60s. But, you know, new people take the place of old people. Oh, Roger. Shay, my friend, Shay Smith, the uh, the contralto lead here, is the daughter, a granddaughter of Anna Carter, who sang her part. The, the pictures of them are remarkably alike. Anna was one of the original three children of, of Dad Carter, uh, the four of them, Dad and his three children, uh, went on to, to sing for the Bewley Flour Mills on WBAP in Fort Worth, Texas in 1935. The reason they're called the Chuck Wagon Gang was that they were hired to replace a, a cowboy band that had just quit or been fired or something. And uh, and so they, they kept the name going at the radio station, but just brought this, this singing family their name was Carter, but of course they couldn't be called the Carter family, could they? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> amongst themselves, I guess it was yeah. all right. But uh, uh, but still, there's even though the, the the singing is straight, you know, the soprano sings the lead and the alto, and it's like you find in in your conventional Presbyterian hymn books. That's how the Stamps Baxter arrangements were done for for groups like that, the bluegrass harmony style puts the lead in the middle and the tenor above and the you know the baritone or bass below but the lead is 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 in the middle instead of on the top chuck wagon gang keeps that lead up on the top unless of course other people stop singing and you get somebody with a beautiful contralto voice like Shay who comes there at the bottom and just you know manages to hold your attention with that uh, with that beautiful name her grandmother sang just like that and the, the there's tons of records that they made in the 30s that are uh, Almost that good. <laughs> mm. how, did you, how did you meet her? Um, I, I went, but as soon as I heard the Chuck Wagon Gang was coming to uh, to uh, Fort Myers, I said, when? <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> and uh, and I, I met her on that occasion. There is a large church that must have held about 2,000 people. I cannot think of the name of it. I would know it if I saw it again, and I, I could I could find out. I think. Where where? Whereabouts in Naples is it? Was, it? No, it was in Fort Myers. Oh, it's in Fort Myers. Yes, downtown downtown Fort Myers, hmm. and uh, it had a, an immense parking lot. And I say, but must have been two thousand people or so that gathered to see them. And she confirmed with me that she she had no idea how long, but but she knows that that as soon as the Chuck Wagon Gang started touring, that Florida was was one of their. Uh, most popular places. I've seen them in Fort Myers. They've been here twice. I went up to, almost to uh, to Tampa once to to see them up there. I mean, uh, you know, if it's you know a day's drive, if they if they come, I'll, I'll go and see them. Hmm. Um, when was the first time you may have seen them? How far maybe, back? Maybe every every year or two. I guess I saw them around 2010, 2011. Okay, but when was the first time you saw them? Did you see them way back in the day? 
They were out of they were out of Texas in okay. those days, and they they lived in Texas. Where the the originals did. Uh, they you know lived and died in more or less in Texas. Shay married uh, married someone, and they uh, they live in North Carolina. Um, a beautiful soprano, uh, Julie Goldquist. I can't think of the lady's name who's uh, who's singing there now. The only other person with a voice as good as, as Julie's. The original Chuck Wagon Gang didn't have such a strong soprano lead, hmm. and so the the records they're making today are better than the ones from the thirties. So what was it about this song, or how did you wind up with this song as one of your three? Well, she sent it to me right about the time that you asked me to pick three songs. And as soon as I heard it, I said, if this song is about memories, emotions, and all, I, I, I can't think of anything that I'm going to find of it that, that's going to that's gonna beat that out. Huh. You know, that's, that's as emotionally intense as anything I've ever heard in my life. Hmm. I'm talking about adagio movements from great concertos right on down, and they nailed it. Hmm. Is there is there something? Did you? I mean, did you yeah. hear it too? Oh yeah, oh. I did. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there something in that genre that that moves you that way in general? Like, is is the, oh, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I know you do the bluegrass show, but like, I cry at every movie, man. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So so I'm easily moved. So. A movie. I mean, all of these. That's one. All of these music examples I played have had that emotional intensity in, in common. I mean, those are people that were really feeling what they what they were singing, and they were relating to something that you and I could uh, could relate to because we have had, let's hope, some parallel mm-hmm. experiences like that, or or just heard music that uh, that we reacted to that that strongly. I think the, I think Big Joe had it. I think they had it, and. Uh, Certainly, those uh, those Cuban guys did as they went slid in and out of those different keys mm. on those guitars. Mm. Uh, there's more music like that we can play. I mean, I got all the time <laughs> in the world, but you, I think you were very wise to make us stick with three things because then that you keeps, gotta, yeah, keep, it keeps you focused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when that record comes out, is that something that you'll play on your show? Again and again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My show will, uh, it, it, it involves old recordings, period recordings, uh-huh. that go mostly 20s and 30s, but going backwards and forwards in time. I do play uh, recent recordings of people singing repertory songs, people reviving old songs in interesting ways. And so I like to be able to attract you know younger people to, to listen to and to, to become familiar with and to perform. Music like no no depression in heaven. Hmm. When you started your show way back in the in the sixties, could you have imagined at the time that you'd be sitting here in Naples, Florida, a half a century later, making it? Everyone still? who's ever interviewed everyone, anyone asks that question, and the answer is invariably, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> <laughs> but but of course the people are much too polite to say that. But no, you could. I mean, I could imagine that the music would still be around. But at the time in 1967, I probably weighed about 110 pounds. I mean, I was almost on life support. I couldn't imagine that I was going to be around in another year. Hmm. So that's a very special circumstance. But I had to give you that answer anyway. <laughs> here's a here's a different. I'm version. sorry to be a smartass. No, bring it, bring it. Here's a here's a different different version of that question. Oh would, no. Would what would what would a 16 year old Dick Spotwood think of current Dick Spotwood. What like, what would your younger self 
think about all of this, the show you do, being the life you've led. Yeah. That one's easy. I, I've aged, but I haven't changed. You know, I mean, the, I like that. The, the stuff that grabbed me then grabs me now. You know, I'm, I, I, I don't have a lot of resources, I guess. <laughs> no, I love that answer. We ask that question almost every time, and that's the great answer because I feel the same way myself. I mean, does that resonate with yeah, y'all too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, as, as 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 little as I know you, I get that from you. I think if I'd known you twenty years or so ago, yeah, I would have I would have seen somebody who was hip and laid back and uh, who caught you know <laughs> caught caught a lot of cues and. Uh, we're gonna uh, make that uh, into a promo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Uh, well, no, and it's interesting too because when I had a chance to start working at the station, you know, I kind of had to button it up a little bit, but I felt like I was sneaking in, <laughs> and I've snuck in. I'm still here, undercover. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But, that, um, but that's a good. I mean, you've got a, you know, the, the, you've got some 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 intellectuals listening and everything, and I think you can be as intelligent as you want to on on uh, public radio. That you don't have to apologize for being an intellectual. Well, you know, and I'm one of those too, and I don't see that at all compatible, incompatible with that cornfield music that I like. You know, that's Um, a comfortable combination for me. So, uh, so um, um, when we leave here, what will be the next music that you play? Um. The next music for, I play for you, yeah, for, for you, you. To to. for you to listen to. Oh, who knows when that'll be? I, uh, <laughs> but the question, as you originally, what will be the next music? I can tell you exactly what that'll be. It'll be a five-string banjo instrumental because that's how I always introduce my shows. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have a, a um, recording today that you're going to do, or when? Are you, when is your, or what is your routine for doing this? Do you have a certain time of day? Do you do a lot of prep work before each show? That varies. Uh, sometimes I'll get a new... I've made a long list of songs about retail businesses that I thought I might try to do a... a yeah, that's that's the one Written I on think. a Publix receipt. Yeah, yeah. I just... <laughs> I save those to, to scroll... to make little scrolls on that I can that I can carry around. Um, but ordinarily, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a lot of music that's not connected. Or if I... If I think of some connection, then I'll, then I'll play something else at the time. This is about people doing retail business, but all the way from you know prostitution to grocery store clerks and uh, uh, and and plumbing and other you know things things that people do for each other to or to each other in order to secure their livelihoods. So I I, I did that a week or so ago. I may go with that tonight. Otherwise, I'll just play things that that seem to sound nice together. And I don't. Hmm. But you will be doing a, a show tonight. Uh, if I, yeah, if, if other things don't don't intervene, uh, I, 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 if I don't, I should. Do you have a script at all when you go in, or do you are you just talking off the top of your head? More off the top of my head than script. I mean, if it's a script, it's still just a mental a mental script. Hmm. Um, and. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm a lot more animated than others, too. I mean, I, I'm very comfortable in what I, because I figure even if I don't sound so great, the music's going to carry the right the show and everything. And since they're running that show four times a week, i got to be doing something right. So uh, <laughs> that's, I mean, I, I say that in order to be smug, but it also, it also is something that's relaxing because it gives me a lot of room to, you know, to to not worry about screwing up. Right. Because I'm not naturally a presenter, and you know, I do a lot of it, but it's 
something I've never, I mean, even when I'm up there on the stage at the Arts for the, the Alliance for the Arts, you know, I, I still get stage fright, you know, so it's not something I'll ever be really, really comfortable with. Well, that's all we got for you, Dick. Do you, you have any? To ask, wait, oh. you wanted to ask about uh, AMU. Oh, oh. Um, did you ever get to know Diane Reem at all? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was she like? What is she like? We'll talk about that off the mic. But I like her immensely. She was what what she was really like in public was was what you experienced. She was somebody with a modest education who had a, a, a you know a brain a mile wide, and uh, very very little got past her. Hmm. Um, but that wasn't the question you asked, so I'm answering, <laughs> I'm answering another question. That's okay. Um, well, so that is. But a, I liked her personally, and I had professionally. I had, my respect for her was boundless. I, uh, the guy that's taken her place is good, but he's a little bit of a hot shot compared to Diane. He is. You know, he and, did this show. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I, I, I knew. I didn't hear that, but I knew he was. He was coming down to do. I didn't realize it was. It was this show and everything, and um, um, he's he's just he's a little more hip than I am, I guess. <laughs> so, oh, um, all right. Well, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? No, only that uh, I think this is a wonderful thing that that you're doing and how you all are able to to incorporate it into your your busy schedules, especially with the. You know the the unceasing technical requirements of keeping a station like that. I mean, the business with the uh, with the transmitters is. I mean, that you must be tearing your hair out with that. Yeah. Talk talk about that on the air. How about you know? How about you know? Talk about that. Well, we've talked about bringing the chief engineer in and actually explaining yeah. all that. Yeah, I had yeah. a conversation yeah. with him. And he can he can talk at length about we'll it. We'll do a segment on Gulf Coast Live because about that that, that yeah. uh, you know that that spills over into the larger discussion of mm-hmm. the. The climate change and Florida's particular relationship to climate change, mm-hmm. and and then everybody say what? Yep, yeah, they, they, good, they, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't say that anymore. Yeah, so, part okay. of part of the good news because is because I'm down here on the fringe reception area. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, boy, I can hear it when the when the power goes down. I go, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Here's here's yeah. part of the good news is when it's done, we're not just replacing; they're upgrading, so uh, you won't be the fringe anymore. It'll be further. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll just be on the lunatic fringe then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Dick. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) We make this podcast in the WGCU studios at Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer. Chris Duffus is executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, we're jumping back one year to episode 27 of this show with visual artist and museum conservator at the Edison and Ford Estates, Megan Kissinger. Her third song was about being in a time of great uncertainty and then being nudged after hearing this song for the very first time to keep her mind and eyes open, only to then serendipitously hear it again for the second time on the morning all of that uncertainty resolved itself into a whole new certainty. And it was the first song for me that ever jumped out of our podcast and into the real world when I heard it for the second time ever that I knew of while standing in line at Home Depot. On the very first day that I went back to work after moving into that house, got in my car, turned on my radio, and the Halls of Shambhala was playing. It was so funny because the song talks about seeing the light in other people, and it also asks you how your light shines. 
how do you make yourself available to the universe? How does uh, how you live your life, does it shine a light? Does it allow other people's light to shine as well? I woke up that morning and I listened to that song and I said, my God, my entire life has just changed in a short three months time. And then I remembered that dream that I had and I remembered that whoever it was that gave me that message said, everything about your life is going to change and if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss it. So uh, that, that's my new mission in life is to try to pay attention. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. Well, my first boyfriend had one of those <laughs> convertibles that had red Chevrolet that had the flames coming. <laughs> <laughs>